Welcome to Cover to Cover, a podcast featuring musical conversations about an album or song which has changed and enhanced someone's life. I am your host, songwriter Matt Targa. Thanks for joining us today. We humans connect with the presence of music in our own unique way. As an artist, a concert goer, through our headphones, or as something that simply lives in our everyday background. Our guest today happens to be an old friend of mine and also a housemate who I met while in college in the last century. And as I say that out loud, that sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? Last century. He is one Anthony Musumichi, affectionately called Moose or to others, Digger, because of a hat calling out the nickname for the Colorado School of Miners. Oh my God, you just brought up the Digger nickname. I haven't heard that in a long time, my friend. During those years... Anthony's album collection was and likely still is meticulously organized by artist and genre. You never knew what you were going to hear rattling the walls or ears of his room. One day it might be Archer's Loaf, the next day perhaps Neil Young and everything in between. Digger and I were in a barefoot acoustic trio many years ago called Smith's Grove, and as you might have figured out, That name was inspired by the insane asylum holding Michael Myers in that classic 1978 film called Halloween. Today, Anthony is an American history teacher and co-host of a new podcast called The Music Draft, which can be found on Spotify as well as Apple. The premise of this show is Anthony and three of his college buddies identifying very specific topics that follow a set of rules provided by a commissioner of that draft, and they go through five rounds, and there are a total of 20 picks. And the group chooses their top songs within that topic. It could be top songs to open an album, top songs off sophomore albums. They could be talking about three-piece bands, 90s hip-hop, album artwork, Seattle songs, jam band songs, and they're currently working on a plethora of other subjects, such as covers, duets, solo projects, and songs from movies. But for our conversation today, we're going to be discussing a different decade. We're going to be dipping into the 1960s, and we will be specifically talking about a living legend. And that living legend is songwriter Bob Dylan. And that record is a landmark album that was released on May 27th of 1963, titled The Freewheelin' which was released on Columbia Records. This was the first record from Zimmy to feature a generous breadbasket of original material that was produced by both John Hammond, who discovered the artist, as well as Tom Wilson. In 2002, the Freewheelin' was one of the first 50 recordings chosen by the Library of Congress to be added to the National Recording Registry. Kind of a fun fact, isn't it? So without further ado, let's welcome our guest, Anthony most digger. Welcome to Cover to Cover. Thanks for coming on the show. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. Listen, thank you for uh, for inviting me on, man. Uh, I'm very excited to to reconnect. Very excited to dive into an artist that we know very well, uh, that we saw when we were at Scranton together. Um, very excited to just kind of break down one of one of what I think is a timeless album, an album that I still consistently revisit. Uh, from the 60s and an album I'm excited to jump into. Me too. And we're talking, you know, incidentally about what some people have commonly referred to as a 20th century Shakespeare. So with this in mind, where did this exactly begin for you? When did you discover Bob Dylan? When did you discover the freewheeling? And just generally the young man from Hibbing, Minnesota. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny when you say, like, when did I discover Bob Dylan? It, I can honestly tell you, I can remember discovering certain artists. Like, I, I'm a big Pearl Jam fan. I'm a big Metallica fan. I'm a big Neil Young fan. And I can remember when I discovered those bands. Dylan's a little different. Like, I don't have, like, a definitive memory of when I discovered Dylan. I have definitive memories of hanging out with you and, like, listening to Bob Dylan uh, when we were in college. But it's weird. Like, I don't have like this like distinct memory. Like, it's funny though. I will say this that I remember, and I'll I'll go to Neil Young here for a second. And I can remember when I was a kid in high school. And as I started to dive into classic rock a little bit more, my dad was a big classic rock guy, right? But he was a big like Stones, Clapton, Cream, Beatles, Pink Floyd. He wasn't a big Bob Dylan guy. And I never really heard of Dylan, but I'll never forget going back to Pearl Jam and Neil Young and seeing Neil Young perform at the MTV uh, Video Awards in like 93, I believe it was. And I was like, man, who's this old guy playing with Pearl Jam? And I was like, dude, it's pretty cool. And it was Neil Young. And I remember like going to the CD store, remember those days, and buying like Neil Young's greatest hits. And I remember through Neil Young because I loved his acoustic and his electric. That's how I then started to like shift into, hey, who's this Bob Dylan guy? And it was kind of a slow process with Dylan. It wasn't like a distinct memory. And I remember just kind of digging into his archives. And next thing you know, like I found myself slowly falling in love with this artist that was a voice of a generation for the 60s. And I always found myself, even in my younger days, even in, and now that I'm, you know, 41 years old, artists like Bob Dylan and Neil Young are timeless to me. They're classic to me. There's some of the classic rock artists that I never get tired of. Like, honestly, if like Led Zeppelin and the Stones, um, even Pink Floyd, I love those bands are fantastic, but I rarely put one of their albums on anymore because they're just so overplayed in my mind for me. But like, I can never get enough of Bob Dylan and artists like Neil Young. I can't. And that's what's exciting about talking about this album, because I still will listen to the freewheeling a handful of times a year. You know, I own it on vinyl. So it's one of those things that I'll put on um, just good amount of time, just throw it on in the background and just love it. And every time I hear it, as simple of an album as it is, I mean, it's just Dylan, an acoustic guitar and a harmonica for 99% of the album. I still find myself finding new things lyrically about the songs that are being sung. I just think it's a tremendous album uh, to dive into. Is that what you gravitate towards first, the lyrics, or do you hear some sort of melodic composition that that gets to you first? Is that what brought you to Dylan, just his his lyrical prowess from a really young age, and that's what you know, it's, stood it's the a, test of time? Yeah, it's a it's a great question because I think Dylan is so unique, and it's funny. Like people people who don't like Dylan, like I get it. Like his voice is it's an acquired taste, right? Like he, he's not he's not he's not the greatest of singers yet. I love his voice and I love the way he sings because I've always found Dylan to be like a wandering minstrel in the woods during medieval times, just telling stories about mm, what he sees. Yeah. And he's always painting these pictures of what's going on in society and relationships in his life. And there's no one that does it better. And I've always found Dylan as the kind of guy that I love listening to him. But when I listen to him, it's not just the music. Like I'm, focused on his words and his lyrics more than almost any other artist that I can think of. Like there are some bands like, I'll just say like, I like, you know, I'm love Metallica, right? They're the opposite of Bob Dylan, but I don't really love Metallica for like the lyrics of some of their songs. I just love the music and I love like the energy. Whereas Dylan, 
I think he's a great musician. I think he's a great songwriter and his lyrics and the stories that he paints and tells are just, they're just so much fun to listen to and so poignant. And it's his interpretation of what he sees in society. And he's just constantly commenting. And I just think he just nails it a lot of times. So to me, he's just very exciting to listen to lyrically more than anything. Talking to my old friend, Anthony Musumichi here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka. We are getting into the freewheeling 1963 offering from Bob Dylan. Um, Anthony, this is the second record from the man, the myth, the legend. Um, this wasn't necessarily one of the the uh, questions that you know that we sort of like prepared for, but I, I'm going to ask it anyway. And that is, this is a real landmark album in the sense that the majority of the material on here are original compositions. Do you think that he put himself out on a limb here by just releasing so much of what was you know happening in popular culture, happening in society? Um, do you think? this was necessarily a risk that he might've been <clears throat> taking, or you think this was just, you know, a, a lot of social comment commentary, excuse me, that needed to be expressed. You right know, then, I, right I then think and there. I, I like the question um, because I think this, and one of the reasons why I love this album so much is I think of the context of the album. It's something like, like I always say, it's like, as like someone who teaches history, I'm always teaching my students context. I think context is really important just in life as a whole. And when I look at this album, it's the context. He wrote it in 1963-64 and at the height of the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, social unrest. There's a lot going on in our country at this time. And he's a 20-year-old kid. Dude was 20 years old when he wrote this album. And to me, the beauty of this album is that we've all been 20 before, right? And when we're 20, you're still impressionable. You're still trying to figure out the world for what it is. And here's this 20-year-old kid. Like, I don't think he's taking a risk. I think he's just like, forget it. Like, I, I'm just I'm just seeing the world through my eyes as a 20-year-old kid. And this is what I see. He just happens to be, I think, like, like a genius <laughs> with his ability to craft stories and his word choices and how he sings things and the inflection in his voice and how he says things. So when I think of Dylan, I don't think he's taking a risk. I think Dylan is saying, look, man, I'm 20 years old. This is what I'm experiencing. This is like, think about when you're 20, like you, you're, you're, you're kind of just throw caution to the wind because you got nothing to lose. And I think for Dylan, he's like, ah, you know, like, this is what I see right now. When he writes certain songs, like whether it's masters of war or a uh, hard rain's going to come, hard rain's going to fall. I should say, yeah, I, I think he is just commenting on what he sees. And I think the context of knowing that he is 20 years old, and he has the foresight to talk about what he's seeing and in the songs that it comes out. I just think it's, I think it's brilliant. I think it shows what kind of songwriter he was and the genius that he was. Because you're right, his first album was a lot of folk ballads, a lot of covers, right? He's just getting his feet wet. But instead of just like, you know, sticking with those covers, he's like, nah, man, like I'm ready to do my own thing. I'm ready to take what I've learned from like, you know, the Woody Guthrie's of the world and those folk ballads. And I'm going to write my own folk ballads. And that's what the freewheeling is. And that's what, in my opinion, makes it one of his best albums. And it makes it a brilliant album that he was only 20 years old. It was his second album. And you see how far he came from covering folk ballads on the first to then writing his own. That is still like a timeless masterpiece today. Absolutely. We are talking with Anthony Musumichi here on Cover to Cover with Matt Targa. All things Bob Dylan, all things the freewheeling. Anthony, I'd like to talk about some of your favorite tracks. We can go 
track by track or we could cover your absolute favorites. Um, how would you like to, uh, to, to approach this? Uh, I, you know what, to me, like we don't have to go, uh, we don't have to go through every single song. Um, I'm cool with just going through just a couple of them and just highlighting them. I would also say to you at the same time, like, what are some of your favorite songs too? Like, I would love to know, you know, like here are mine, like what are yours and does it match up? Do you have other songs that you're like, Hey, you know what? Like this song's real special to me because, and what is that as well? So, you know, for me, like, I'd love to hear what yours are as well. Okay. Uh, I think this one certainly matches up with, you know, what you had mentioned to me before, and that was Masters of War. Masters of War is one of these songs that, um, boy, it it influenced, you know, a band that you mentioned before, like Pearl Jam. There's a real prominent cover that that's out there and they've been i think essentially you know playing that song you know on a regular basis in their live repertoire since the early 90s um i i love his take on things that you know that were going on in the early 60s and he's certainly wise beyond his years like you said he's a 20 year old guy you know trying to make sense of the world and he he sees a lot of injustices and he sees a lot of people who are in certain areas of power that are making some decisions that may not necessarily benefit a greater good and put a lot of people in serious danger so i think this is like one of these songs that really put him on the map and gave him that moniker of being the voice of generation um what do you think i i um yeah man no i couldn't agree more um and it's funny because you just sent me that um that youtube clip of the of the pearl of uh veteran mccready and the guy from snl i, I can't remember what yeah. his name was oh uh ge smith yeah. yes yes and i look i mean i'm a diehard pearl jam fan i don't know why i have never heard that cover before and holy hell like the way Vetter sings it's just incredible and i think it's it's just it was fantastic but you're right like that song to me is such a powerful song like it's not the kind of song i can listen to all the time because it is so intense in the um really like just the ferociousness in which he sings a folk song right like mm-hmm. to me like the lyrics of that song you would think should be like a heavy like loud aggressive like punk rock song like that's what those words like if, if, if I gave you those words, you're like, oh, man, that's got to sound like The Clash, right? The like Clash should be singing that song. No, no, no. This is Bob Dylan playing like a folk ballad over these lyrics that are just so intense about, like you said, people in power making decisions that were costing young men's lives during the Vietnam War. And for me, like the beauty of that song is like I think – and Dylan does this better than anyone. Like it's incredible. Like I don't – if I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong. I think there's no chorus. I think it's like verse after verse after verse. He's done this time and That's time right. again in his music. Like times they are a changing is the same way. It's it's just a ver- it's like a wave just keeps hitting you. And it's this rolling verse. And that's all Masters of War is. It's one verse after another with no chorus over this angry 20-year-old having to have this talk about politicians quoting Dylan, like play with my world, like it's your little toy. Right. Speaking about politicians making these decisions, sending young men overseas, right? Places like Vietnam, where I bet an 18 or 19 year old probably couldn't even find it on a map at that time. Right. And this angry, snarky tone in his voice is something that, like, you feel it. Like, you can feel his frustration as a 20 year old, right? Probably knowing friends of his that have gone over to serve in Vietnam. I mean, it's a terrific protest song, is what it is. 
And it's one of the most powerful songs. And I think it speaks, like you had said, a voice of a generation. Think about me. When you're 20, you're still trying to find your voice, right? You're still trying to articulate what's going on in the world. And here's this 20-year-old kid singing it for you and singing it so poetically, so beautifully, so angrily that you get it. You know, like in one of the verses when he talks and he says this, like, you know, how much do I know to talk out of turn? You might say I'm young. You might say I'm unlearned. But there's one thing I know that I'm younger than you. And even Jesus wouldn't forgive what you do. Like he's he's calling himself out. It's brilliant. He's like, look, I know that I'm young. You might say mm-hmm. I'm unlearned. Like I don't know the ways mm-hmm. of the world. But what I do know is what you all are doing is messed up. <laughs> like that's like, that's what I feel like he's saying. And we all recognize that. You know, he he clearly points out his youth. And he clearly points out his ignorance that he's unlearned. But he could clearly see that despite his youth, he could see what politicians were doing during this time and during Vietnam. And it's just remarkable to me that at 20 years old, he was doing that. And, and that's why, to me, like that song is such a powerful song. And it's a song that always stands out to me because um, I think it's a song that's timeless. And I'll speak to that about his, some of his other songs. It's a song that if you played it today, right? Like you can relate it to almost any time, like when you're at war and you think about, well, why are politicians making these decisions? And they're difficult decisions to make, but he's looking at it from a 20 year old's perspective. And I think it's brilliant. You mentioned a word just a second ago, and that word was clarity. There is one very specific verse right before uh, the one that we just discussed about even Jesus would never forgive what you do. Like Judas of old, you lie and deceive. A world war can be won. You want me to believe. This is the line that still just gets me, you know, since I, you know, heard the song for the first time. And that is, but I see through your eyes and I see through your brain, like I see through the water that runs down my drain. Ah, dude, it's so intense. Oh, <laughs> it's and, so and, 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 and what he does afterwards, you, you also described the wave. What he does after that verse is he triple strums. Yeah, that, you know, right after that, it's it's as if he's finished a thought or a uh-huh. stanza, and you know, you know that that wave is going to build and build and build. He's just starting. He's just warming up. He's like microwave popcorn. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so good, man. It, it's um, I think it speaks to his songwriting, and I think he wrote more and more songs like that. Like a hard rain's gonna fall was similar to that, where it's just one verse on top of another on top of another. And I think that was him finding his voice, like his songwriting style. I think you start to see that on this album and then it rears its head throughout his entire career. Um, And I love it. I I think it's a unique way to write songs because he's not writing it in terms of, oh, you have to have an intro, then a verse, and then a pre-chorus and a chorus, and then verse, chorus. He's he's not doing that. (laughs) No. You know, have you ever thought about A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall as a waltz? That from a tempo point of view, well, I was listening to it again. I was thinking, "Oh my god, this is this is a this is a a, a really dark waltz." <laughs> I've never <laughs> heard this way away That's from true. joyousness. I know. Yeah. I've always felt it was like very apocalyptic as he's singing it. I've never thought of it as a waltz, but I will tell you, I will be putting it on later, and I will be listening to it like that. There's there's a line in A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans. And th- this little commentary here is not necessarily, yeah, it's not necessarily about clarity, but dead oceans, uh, it just goes to show how influential uh, Bob Dylan was. I believe Dead Oceans is an indie record label in Bloomington, Indiana. Oh, and, is it really? Uh, 
Yeah, I think I think a couple of artists like Connor Oberst and Phoebe Bridgers are on that label, Dead Oceans. But that just kind of struck me as, yeah, that's just that's another song that has truly stood the test of time. And some great contemporary songwriters are under that the the guys of that name, if you will. Yeah, for sure, man. For sure. <laughs> Pretty cool. We are talking with Anthony Musumichi here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tark about Bob Dylan's The Free Will. And this is this was an instant classic from Robert Zimmerman once upon a time in 1963. And uh, what other songs shall we discuss? I know that don't think twice is all right. It's all right. Excuse me. Is uh is certainly a favorite here. Um, for sure. What, what's um, you? Yeah. I, for me, like that song I've always, I'll never forget. I, that's a song that I'll never forget listening to for the first time. It, it was a song that takes a departure from like the protest angle of a 20 year old, like angry at the government and what the government's doing and, and and that I get that. Then here's a turn of a 20 year old, like just going through relationships. Right. And apparently the song, if I remember correctly, and I was reading about this, um, in a Rolling Stone article, the girl that's on the cover name, I think was Suze Rotolo is who's on the cover of the free will. And that was Dylan's girlfriend at the time. And my understanding is through kind of like my own research of, you know, reading about Dylan over the years is that she was like the muse for Dylan on that album. And she inspired Dylan a lot because she apparently had like worked for like um, racial equality groups and worked for like social equality groups. And she was the one that inspired him to, I think, see the world the way that he began to sing about it. And the song, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, my understanding was she left to go, I think, visit family in Italy while they were dating. And this was like his song. They were kind of going through like a rough patch. And the song really, to me, is simply put, the greatest kind of like, I don't know how to put it, but like kind of like, eh, well, you know, screw you. Like I'm kind of, we're kind of, this is over, right? And I'm just going to politely, quietly, very nicely say to you, see ya, we're good. Time's done. I'll see you. I'll see you later. And I've always felt like that's exactly what the song was. Um, and I'll never forget listening to it for the first time. And I'll never forget just the lyrics. This one verse when he talks this and he says, so long, honey, babe, where I'm bound, I can't tell. Goodbye is too good a word. So I just say fare thee well. I ain't saying you treated me unkind. You could have done better, but ah, I don't mind. You just kind of wasted my precious time. Don't think twice. It's all right. I remember listening to that and being like, wait, what the hell did he just say? Like, I remember being like, hold on for a second. Wait, is he, is he, is he basically telling her like, like F you man? <laughs> like, is that, is that what that was? Because if it is, that's the nicest way you, It's like, yeah, that's like the nicest way you could have ever said it to someone. Right. <laughs> and I, I was like, I was like, well, hold on. I was like, well, I got to listen to that again. And I remember putting the song back on and being like, oh my God, like he is just telling this girl that I am done with you. And I, I I'm, and, and it's cool. Like, it's okay. You just kind of wasted my precious time. Like my time is what matters and you wasted it, but it's okay. Hey, don't think twice, hon. It's all right. It's all good. We'll see each other later. I'm like, good, goodbye is too good a word. <laughs> goodbye is too good a word. So I say for everyone. I'm like, so I, to me, I've always felt like that is just such a cool way of like saying, I'm just going to break up with you. It's all good. Like, no worries. You know what I mean? Like, 
not like angry, not I'm throwing things. It's just kind of like, and Dylan just had that way about him. He had that way of just choosing the right words to tell these stories. And I always thought, don't think twice, sorry, which is a song that's been covered like a thousand times is just such a great song that I never get sick of. I don't, it always makes me laugh. It always makes me, so we've all broken up with people, right? Like we've all had relationships that have gone sour and I just laugh every time I listen to that song. I'm like, God, that's such a brilliant way to say that to someone. <laughs> it's an it's an interesting position from a track listing point of view. It's track seven. It literally is kind of a, uh, you know, right before that palate cleanser of Bob Dylan's dream. It's, Ugh, it's I love like Bob Dylan's complaining dream. Complaining a thought. And, you know, I was wondering if uh, Down the Highway was kind of a companion piece in some ways to Don't Think Twice. It's all right. You know, mainly because you mentioned that, you know, Lord, she took it, you know, she took it away to Italy. Yeah. You know. In down the oh, highway. Yeah. I, I wonder. If they, I wonder if they were written around the same time. If anything, I, oh, absolutely. And he split them into I, two pieces. Yeah. I think that's a. I, you know what? It's funny you say that. I would have never. I would have never thought of that um, until you just said that. And you know what? I think that makes total sense because, like I said, like she was like his girlfriend at the time, and then she did go away. She had family in Italy, and she went away while they were dating. So it would make sense. It absolutely would. We're talking with an American history teacher. On cover to cover with Matt Targa. His name is Anthony Musumichi, and Anthony is one co-host of a podcast known as The Music Draft, which you all should check out. And we will be talking about a little bit more uh later on on today's episode. Um, Anthony, what other songs shall we cover? I know a personal favorite of mine is Oxford Town. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, yeah. I would say I, I would say for sure, you know, and it's funny because as yeah, I I appreciate you introducing me as a as a as a history teacher because Oxford Town is a history lesson. And you know, here once again is this 20-year-old kid just commenting on what he sees, right? What's going on mm-hmm. in the world? Well, in 1962, what was going on was James Meredith, who was um supposed to be able to go to the University of Mississippi as an African American. This is, you know, years after Brown versus Board. Supreme Court said that you have to integrate with all deliberate speech. And look, in the states in the South, we're still promoting segregation, still promoting segregated schools. And here was James Meredith, an African-American, into the University of Mississippi at Ole Miss, down in Oxford, right? When James Meredith tried to integrate Ole Miss. And this story goes back to, you can go back to the Little Rock Nine in 1957, when you had the nine teenagers try to integrate Central High, and there was this mob of segregationists that just wouldn't want them in. It took them weeks. It took Dwight Eisenhower to essentially call in the Federal Guard to escort these nine African-American teenagers to evoke their civil right to go to that public school. It happened later with uh, two students at the University of Alabama in 1963, which led to JFK's civil rights address. And it's happening here with James Meredith. 1962 with Mississippi and going trying to get into University of Mississippi. And when Meredith arrived at the school's campus, under the protection of federal forces, mind you, including U.S. Marshals, there was a mob of like 2,000 kids. I mean, it's just crazy to think that 2,000 people are just trying to prevent someone from entering a school based off of their race. And it happened. And because of that, two people were killed and many others were injured in this ensuing chaos um, and literally it took attorney general, Robert Kennedy to send in federal marshals and later federalize the national guard to basically allow James Meredith into the school. And I bring this up 
Because here's Bob Dylan at 20 years old, and he writes this song about what took place on that day. You know, and that's exactly what he's writing about is his commentary on Jim Crow and segregation and what's going on in our society. And I think it leads it lends itself to the future song that he would write, which is the times they are changing, which, you know, he eventually participated in the March on Washington. Um, that took place in August of 63. So that was he participates in that a few months after he writes Oxford Town. Then after the March on Washington, he writes the times they are a changing, which is absolutely inspired by what he experienced at the March on Washington. And for me, as a U.S. history teacher, like I just make it a point, man. And I think I've texted you over the years every time I do this. Yeah. Um, I make it a point to play Bob Dylan in my class when I teach civil rights to my students. Uh, I make it a point that my students walk away from my class having known who Bob Dylan is because not only he's a great musician, he's a voice of a generation, but he's a primary source for students. And when you're studying history, you study everything from photographs, political cartoons, maps, charts, speeches. You know what else you can study? You can study songs. Songs can oftentimes be a window into what's taking place in society. And I've played Oxford Town for my students to show the type of brutality that African-Americans were up against just simply trying to integrate schools. I play the times they are changing to show how Bob Dylan was motivated and inspired because of what he, what he felt during the March on Washington. You know, and think about the song like the times they are changing. When Barack Obama was elected president in 2008, he asked Bob Dylan to play that song for him at his inaugurational like gala ball, and he did. So I, for me, I love Oxford Town. It's the short two-minute, like almost like a little, like this little ditty, but it's so powerful in its lyrical content because he's explaining to you, he's telling you, uh, his, he's like basically just giving you like a news story of what took place with James Meredith. And I think it's powerful and you can learn a lot. And that's what I think is the beauty of some of his albums and that album particularly. Um, he's commenting on what's going on in society and he does it just brilliantly. I've got a question as a history teacher, you, you bring up Oxford down in the times they are changing. Are students of yours um, coming to you with various songs, either from that particular Dude, time period. So, or, yeah, I tell you what, that is such an amazing question. I'm going to tell you why. So, and I, I'll, I'll leave students' names out of it. Um, but so this past year, I had, there was a so we we just got finished learning about civil rights, and I just played uh, Bob Dylan's "The Times Are Changing," and I've always done like an activity. Like I've always I've always had students take a look at his lyrics and make inferences and kind of plug in the specifics to like what he's singing about. Right. I actually had a student um, share with me a song and it's, it's a song. It's called Mr. Officer. And it's all about, it was written this past year. And I can't, I'd have to Google who sings the song and I'm not sure who it was, but he sends me the song via email. He goes, Hey, Mr. Moose, just want to let you know, like, you know, I really appreciate you playing Bob Dylan. It's not my kind of music, but I appreciate like the message. Hey, here's a song that I like. That's talking about what's going on today. Now, look, he's an African-American student that sends me a rap song about the police brutality that exists today. And to me, it was, it was like it was a really powerful song because like this kid is listening to an artist today that he can relate to because it's one of his artists that's commenting on society around him. The song is called Mr. Officer, and it is 
it's a powerful song. Um, I, now listen, do I do I listen to a lot of 2020 rap? No, I will tell you. Being teaching in high school and knowing rap is as popular as it is, I have had students like give me songs to listen to, and I have grown more of an appreciation for that style of music because I recognize its popularity and I recognize that what kids are listening to today. That's the equivalent to like our, you know, grunge music. That's the equivalent to like our parents listening to folk music in the 60s or the Beatles. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I've grown a deep appreciation for it. And he did. He played this song for me. And it was funny. We actually had an email chain going back and forth because I then played for him like my favorite protest songs. Like I played for him. uh, Bruce Springsteen has a song called American Skin. I played Pearl Jam's uh, WMA. And then he was sending songs back to me and it was just a really cool connection. And it's things like that. You kind of hope you get with students in class. I'm like, you're not going to really reach every kid. Not every kid's going to care. Like, that's fine. But, you know, every once in a while, you'll get a couple kids that like will, are picking up what you're putting down in terms of getting them to just think critically and make connections. And that was one of those times. And it was just really, really cool. I would recommend listening to the song because it's powerful. And I think it speaks volumes about the social unrest that we're witnessing and that we witnessed all summer and it still exists. Um, the song speaks volumes. Um, another story, I'll just, I'll just share another one. You got me thinking about it. So there was a girl that I taught, she's a senior now and I teach mainly freshmen and she's a senior. And I'll never forget when I played times there, I changed and this was four years ago. So it was 2016. And I believe she went to like the March for our lives. And that song, they said, <laughs> she said, she was at the march and that song was being played and she took a video of the song like and people were singing it in the crowd and she showed it to me like like later that like after when she got back she goes Mr. Moose like take a look and she showed me the video of like her and her friends like singing the song that I had played in class and she's like look it's Bob Dylan and it was like at that moment Tarks I was like I've done my job I've done my job <laughs> <laughs> That's worth its weight in gold honestly. That's worth its weight in gold I was like those two yeah. instances right there I, I could, I could, I could leave my job today knowing I've done my, I've, I'm, I'm happy. I'm satisfied. You know, like those little connections there uh, really go a long way. And it's what makes, I think, you know, teaching, I think like such a, such a special profession um, is when you can make those types of personal connections. Cause kids see that you're tr- like, you're like, Hey, look, I'm throwing myself out there. Like, do I need to play Bob Dylan in my class? No, it's not a state standard. It's not going to be on like an assessment. You know what I mean? But it's not the point. The point is, is that this guy's a primary source who lived during a time of, of, of turmoil and a time of like he's commenting on what's going on. Like I played Masters of War in my class when I've taught the Vietnam War. Like he's just that guy. He's that guy. He's a great resource. And, you know, when those connections happen, it's, it's pretty special for sure. That's a great that's a that's a great question, man. <laughs> Why thank you. We are talking with Anthony Musumichi of the Music Draft, and you have just learned in much greater detail that he is an American history teacher and teaches uh mostly you, you said mostly freshmen, and that's that's interesting that you can see kind of that uh the, the stages of growth, you know? Yeah, from, it it's cool. Yeah. You teach you teach freshmen, you see them all four years. If you teach right. seniors, you only really see them once. So it's kind of neat. You get them when they're like when they they don't like they don't know anything, and then you watch. You can see them in the halls. They come back and visit. Uh, it's cool, man. It, it definitely is for sure. What other songs would you like to 
discuss. We've covered Masters of War. We've covered Oxford Town. Don't think twice. It's all right. Talked about Down the Highway. Um, just briefly mentioned Blown in the Wind. That was an instant classic that opens this entire album. You know, was covered by Peter, Paul, and Mary. I think Peter, Paul, and Mary actually released it before uh, the freewheeling was made. I think uh, you're right. Public yeah. via Columbia or, or something along those lines. Um, but this song's, you know, is as we've been discussing really heavy on original material, um, lots of, you know, reinterpretations and whatnot of some, you know, classic songs like, you know, from lead belly and, uh, uh, gosh, uh, what is it? Bob Dylan's dream, which I think is a, a really interesting take on a Lord Franklin song. You know, he was, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, for sure, man. That's another personal kind of favorite of mine. I would uh, say, yeah, yeah. I would say this. There's one more song that I would like to um, give a little love to. Because, right? and for me, the last song I would like to discuss, and then if there's anything out there you want to discuss with it, man, I'm all in. But for me, I always found this song to be unique simply because it's the only song that uses drums. You know what song I'm talking about? I think I do. Is it, uh, is it Karina Karina? <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only one. Like, yeah. It's just, it's so weird because when you listen to the whole album, it's, you know, it's a Dylan harmonica guitar. It's it. Right. And then all of a sudden, like Karina, Karina comes on and you're like that. Wait, what's that banging? Is that drums? Like, yeah. <laughs> huh? For the last 45 minutes, I haven't heard that instrument. All of a sudden it just shows up towards the end and it's like the light drum. It almost feels like, I don't know what kind of drumstick it is where it's almost got like that feathery tip at yeah. the end. It feels like it's that kind of drum where it's very soft. It's like very gentle. Um, and I love the song. It's very wispy is how I would describe it. Like it, it almost, it, it, it just doesn't, it's so it's such a weird song because it just doesn't fit with the rest of the album. And I've always enjoyed it. I, I've always enjoyed it as like this outlier as just like this almost like odd throwaway because like none of his first couple albums had any drums or anything like that. And here's like Karina, Karina. <laughs> that does and i was like that's kind of cool it's a little different you know so i always thought that was kind of a neat song it, it's kind of like there was this you know again it's that sort of wave analogy there's this wave of intensity that happens through the entire first half of the record you know all the way to oxford town and talking world war three blues and it's almost like okay I, I i need to cool down too you know yeah. that'd be for sure man for sure yeah. moose lastly i want to close our conversation by talking about cover art and okay. uh, we, we've alluded to Suze Rotolo and yeah. we live in this, we live in this world where everything is so instantaneous and fortunately music is still, you know, either consumed, you know, by singles or EPs or full length albums. And, you know, there's some sort of topical idea that takes place. It's always at the behest of the artist, but one thing that's always maintained its presence is cover art with every single type of release that's out there, digital or physical. When you look at, this cover what kinds of images you know are conjured up in your mind so i immediately the first word it's funny you say this and i i'm gonna just i have to i love the question of album artwork because on on the podcast that i that i've um been doing with with my buddies from college guys that you know and as we've been doing you know on our podcast the music draft and we call ourselves like the soundboard right like it's just the four of us we gave ourselves that name just thought it'd be kind of funny And one of our episodes is 90s album artwork, picking our favorite albums that we love the artwork and we put, we just chose a song off of that album, right? It was kind of a fun 
discussion. And the question you ask, I think, is an interesting one because, you know, if there if there are any millennials out there <laughs> that are listening to this, they're going to be like, huh, like album artwork, because everything is digital. And not that there's anything wrong with that. Like, look, I mean, you can never fault people who grow up in the technology that is given to them. You can't. Like, we cannot fault our own kids for using technology the way they do because that's the world that they live in. We know the difference, right? They don't. Mm -hmm. It's not their Mm -hmm. fault. So digitally speaking, I think the artwork has taken a major hit because it's not as necessary. Now, there is album art, but... You know, the linear notes or like when you open up an album or a vinyl and you open up the vinyl and you can feel it, you can touch it. They have the linear notes. They might have some drawings in there. Like it's it it was just more than just the music. It it was just the product. And it was like it was just felt like art instead of just music. It felt like both. Yeah. And sometimes there would be an essay included on the inside from a prominent journalist, stuff like uh, that. Absolutely. And I love that stuff. I eat that stuff up. I loved looking at the song lyrics. Sometimes the lyrics would be like penned by the artist, like handwritten lyrics. Then they would photocopy, put in like Bruce Springsteen and Eddie Vedder did that a lot. Even James Heffield Metallica would do that. And I thought it was super cool. So I guess as a roundabout way to answer the question regarding Dylan is I love that album cover. I find it to be very iconic. And I say that because When you see him with his girlfriend, it's like you could tell it's like they're in a city. It's cold. And she's like wrapped around his arm. And I think if you just see the album cover like at face value, you're kind of like, whatever. I mean, it's just him and this girl. But when you dig deeper and when you find out that like Suja Tolo, like I said before, was like Dylan's inspiration for a lot of the songs. I think it's poignant that she's on that cover because I do believe that she influenced a lot of the songwriting that Dylan had on that album. And I think through her um, fight for social justice and racial equality, and you're 20 years old, you're trying to like, you know, you're trying to impress the girl. I think this was Dylan's way of being like, you know, you're inspired by someone, right? And when you're inspired by someone and you're an artist, you're then going to try to mirror that. And I think he found himself doing that. And he found his voice, I think, through her a little bit. And that album cover subliminally does that and says that. Now, if you don't know that, like, just that little backstory. And that's my own interpretation. Like, knowing that that was his girlfriend at the time and she was into those things, that's what makes that album cover. Because, look, I'm assuming, I'll go on a limb here and say that Bob Dylan had a say in what that album cover was. Correct? What do you think? I think he certainly did. Yeah, I would. I would agree. Right. If if you and I were in a band, we're going to have a lot of say on what that album cover is going to look like. So for Dylan to purposely choose a photograph with him and his girlfriend at the time, I think says a lot about what was going on lyrically in that album. And I think to me, that's really cool. I'm looking at just the emotions of Suze and I'm looking at, at Dylan and there's that sort of like hunched shoulder that Dylan has. And it just, his body language kind of says a little bit about what might be going on in his head and about the, uh, the status of his relationship when that photograph was taken kind of like a little uneasy, a little uncomfortable, happy to be there, but at the same time, uh, kind of on the way out. Yeah, maybe. 
Yeah, but it's she, a, it's a gr- I she's love- happy as a lark in that photo, you know. Yeah. So it's an interesting uh, uh, dichotomy there. Yep, and I love in the background, just like we think context. I think it's like a Volkswagen. Um, uh, uh, is it? Like a Volkswagen van in the background, like right behind Dylan. You're like, dude, like that's total 60s right there. Do you remember that movie that came out in the early 2000s called uh, Vanilla Sky? Yeah, 100%. Tom Cruise and Penelope Cruise, if I remember correctly, about three quarters of the way through that movie, recreated that that cover. Yes, they absolutely. Oh, my gosh. I haven't seen or thought about that movie in 20 years. You're absolutely right. Um, They did. They totally did. Yep. It might have been around the same time that it was in, uh, inducted into the uh, Library of Congress. Maybe there was, maybe that's what in, you know somehow informed Cameron Crowe when he was uh, writing and uh, producing Vanilla Sky. But I don't know. I just kind of randomly thought of that. Um, yeah, Tom Cruise and Penelope Cruz, you know, did such a really fun and nice job creating it. Yeah, yeah, totally, man, totally. Anthony, it has been such a pleasure talking with you about the freewheeling by Bob Dylan. Thank you so much, very much for being here and coming on the show and talking about such an iconic album. Absolutely, man. Look, I, I couldn't thank you enough. This has been a pleasure. Um, talking about music is just something that I've done my whole life. It is it is something that it's very meaningful to me. It's very important to me. Uh, I find it to be therapeutic. <laughs> um, listening to it, talking about it, just just everything. So, I, you know, the fact that you, you asked me to come on you invited me. I, you know, I'm very grateful for that. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to have this conversation with you. Talk about an album that I think is significant. I think it's timeless. I think it's it's an album that everyone should listen to at least once in their life. Uh, and I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it, man. So thank you. I really appreciate the uh, the invite, brother. It's been my pleasure. And where can people find it more out about the music draft? Oh, yeah. So if you got like, so for anyone out there listening, right, if you want to check it out, it's me, three of my three college buddies that Tarks knows very, very well. We all went to University of Scranton together. We reconnected during (laughs) during the pandemic. And we decided to just kind of run with this idea, this podcast, where we basically just draft. We have we have like rules and we have these topics that are very specific, whether it's top songs to open an album, um, you know, top uh 90s hip hop songs whatever it is you know it, it's just been a lot of fun that with what we've been doing um right now we're currently working on episodes our favorite our top covers that we draft uh top duets or collaborations we're going to be working on top solo projects and then soundtracks so that's going to be in the works right now we we have eight episodes already up so you could check us out on Spotify and kind of like our thing is like the way that we sell, the way that like we want it, the way that we do it and what we like about it is it's like podcast, the playlist. So if you check us out on Spotify, it's the music draft presented by the soundboard. You'll notice that after you listen to the podcast, our playlist is up on Spotify in draft order. So it's really cool. It's an opportunity to kind of check out the songs and you hear them in that order that we discussed it in. Uh, you can also find us on Apple as well. But Spotify is definitely, I think, the better option right now because it goes right to our playlist as well. So, hey, man, hope to ch- hope you check it out. Um, and if you do, leave comments in the on our Instagram page, which is also titled The Music Draft. So hopefully we uh, get you to check it out and come on in, man. Thanks for coming on, Moose. And uh, thanks for sharing more about The Music Draft. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me, bro.
All right. Thanks very much to Anthony Musumichi for taking some time to stop by cover to cover today. For all of you listeners out there, thank you very much. And please remember to hit that subscribe button on that device in which you listen to your favorite podcast, whether it's Google, Apple, Stitcher, uh, Amazon, or wherever you dial into your favorite podcasts. Take a moment to tell your friends and tell your family about our show. Let us know how much you like the show by giving us a good rating. That'll certainly help us appear higher in those search results. And uh, as always, feel free to drop us a line at hello at covertocoverconversations.com. Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Jarrett Nicolay at Mixtape Studios in Northern Virginia. We hope you discovered some new music today, perhaps rekindled your love for an old forgotten song, and shared a good moment with us as we continue to sonically explore world from cover to cover.